0: From Public Radio International, This is the World. A co production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, August 23rd. I'm Marco Werman. Today, an emotional memorial service for 34 minors shot dead by police in South Africa. Also, a long-lost recording of Martin Luther King Jr. He talks about his travels in Africa and the need to solve the problem of racial injustice in the U.S. If
1: we expect to serve as a moral voice in a world
0: that is two-thirds color. And later, an amateur tries her hand at restoring a fresco with disastrous results.
2: Benign neglect would have been so much better.
3: PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Today in South Africa, thousands of people packed a memorial service for 34 dead mine workers.
4: We light this
5: candle as a sign that God, who is love, is always
6: with us.
0: The service was held at the Maracana Platinum Mine, where police opened fire on workers striking for better pay. It was the largest of several events held across the country. The BBC's Nomsa Maseko was at the Maracana service. She says the government tried to organize an official memorial, but people in Maracana refused to go.
4: We saw government having to abandon the venue in which they were going to set up their own memorial service because residents were saying they do not want to join them. In fact, government officials were then forced to come and show face where um, the the memorial service organized by uh, local community members was held because government has been seriously blamed for what is happening here. Local community members are still demanding answers, saying that even though the president has now set up a a judicial committee. Commission of Inquiry and has uh, announced the terms of reference for this commission. It is very little consolation for what they are going through.
0: I mean, it sounds like politics uh, entered this uh, service, this memorial ceremony
4: you know it was inevitable early this morning the mood was somber we were looking at uh, religious leaders and traditional healers and, and traditional leaders saying to community members calm down we understand your pain government is trying to do all it can for you in terms of helping to bury your loved ones but s- shortly after or as soon as politicians started taking to the podium the whole service changed into that of political scoring mm. because we saw the Expelled ANC Youth League leader uh, Julius Malema, who stood and he accused uh, President Jacob Zuma's government of not caring about black people in this country, saying that you have now started a mining revolution and do not stop until those wage demands that you want are met.
0: For the families uh, at the ceremony, uh, families who lost loved ones in the shooting, uh, what did they make of uh, this kind of political theater while they're trying to have, uh, you know, a moment?
4: Emotions were flying high. Yeah, a lot of people were actually saying that government should not have come here. But it, it is very important to, to note that police officers were not present at this vicinity where this memorial service is taking place. Because you would recall that mine workers say they were protesting in peace last week when the, the police shot at them. So they're accusing police of shooting them dead, unprovoked.
0: The other thing that uh, Marakana has signaled for some commentators is the degree to which labor unions seem to be losing power in South Africa, whereas, you know, they once had a much closer relationship to political circles like the ruling party, of the African National Congress. Is that uh, being discussed?
4: It is being discussed because we are seeing here the biggest trade union, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, COSATU, which has formed an alliance with government. So therefore, the ordinary workers who want their working conditions improved are saying that government and these labor unions don't care about them because they're putting their own concerns first um, ahead of the workers.
0: So they feel abandoned by their own unions.
4: They do feel abandoned because they are saying that if trade unions were not aligned with the ruling African National Congress, they would be in a better position to bargain for better salaries.
0: Has this incident led to soul searching about pay and conditions at other mines across the country?
4: Yes, it has. In fact, yesterday we were looking at two mines, uh, the first being the Anglo-American mine. Um, The mine did concede that its workers were looking or or were demanding uh, better salaries but were not on strike. But at a nearby Royal Buffer Gang mine, around a 1,000 rock drillers refused to go underground. They stood near the shaft saying that they want to be um, addressed by their bosses, demanding better pay. So it looks as if these other mining companies are scrambling to keep their employees happy to avoid this situation.
0: And finally, Nomsa, where does all this leave the miners' grievances in Marikana over pay and working conditions that led to the strike in the first place?
4: At this stage, negotiations are not taking place because of the obvious mourning. And miners are expected to go back to work next week. But they are saying that they are not going back to work. That means the 34 uh, of their colleagues who have died would have died in vain if they go back to work without increased salaries and improved conditions.
0: The BBC's Nomsa Maseko in South Africa. Apartheid, of course, is a thing of the past in South Africa, but when it was the law there, the parallels with life in the American South were evident. In the late 1950s, as other African nations were seeking and gaining independence from their colonial masters, it was those countries that served as examples of black independence. That's why a number of black American leaders traveled to places in West Africa to see for themselves and to get inspiration for their civil rights movement. One of those leaders was Martin Luther King, Jr., Little is known about his 1957 trip to Ghana and Nigeria, but a recently discovered recording of King talking about his trip shed some light on why he was there and what impressed him. Have a listen. I just returned from Africa a little more than a month ago, and I had the
1: opportunity to talk with uh, most of the major leaders of the new independent countries of Africa and also leaders in countries that are moving toward independence. And uh, I think all of them agree that uh, in the United States, we must solve this problem of racial injustice if we expect to maintain our leadership in the world and if we expect to serve as a moral voice in a world that is two-thirds colored.
0: Martin Luther King Jr. speaking in a recently rediscovered interview. Raymond Winbush is the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University in Baltimore. He's heard the tapes, and I really want to know, what were your first impressions, Dr. Winbush?
1: Well, believe it or not, it was something rather mundane that, you know, Dr. King did this interview when he was only 31 years old, and I was thinking about what I was doing at 31. And it's Mm. a remarkable vision for a young man to see his struggle as being linked with other countries, and specifically on the African continent. But what is even more remarkable, if you notice in the tape, Dr. King talks about he had been there a month before, and I was curious, what was he there a month before about? And he was there for the inauguration of the first African head of state in Nigeria, and he had been invited. Most of us thought that he had a little bit of contact with African leaders, and this shows that he had extensive contact and saw... What they were doing in Africa is linked with what was happening here in the United States.
0: So how did listening to this tape transform your understanding of the civil rights movement and Dr. King?
1: I I think for me, it helps to put his worldview in perspective. We call it the civil rights movement in this country, but it was clear that even at this early stage, Dr. King saw it as a global human rights issue. So. It kind of gave me a greater understanding how we all need to share a world vision.
0: I gather, Dr. Winbush, that you're leaving for Africa this evening. Has this tape in some small way changed uh, your outlook on where you're going and what your mission there is?
1: In one sense, what I'm doing in Africa, we're going to be helping the Tanzanian government with transportation issues. And the tape couldn't have come for me at a more timely moment because he was encouraging African-Americans to hold hands across the Atlantic with Africans on the continent. So it's very inspirational, in fact.
0: Raymond Winbush is the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University in Baltimore. He's been speaking with us about this recently discovered recording of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talking about his trip to Africa. Thank you so much, Dr. Winbush.
1: Thank you, Marco.
0: This next story is proof, again, that if you want a job done right, hire a professional. Residents of a town in Spain are reeling after a beloved painting of Jesus was found defaced. The culprit? An elderly woman who tried to touch up the weathered fresco herself. She claims to have had the best intentions and permission from the priest at the church housing the fresco. Art historians are expected to meet at the church soon to discuss how to repair the damage. You can see the painting for yourself at theworld.org. It's worth taking a look at the before and after images. Joyce Hill Stoner is paintings conservator in the Art Conservation Department at the University of Delaware. Uh, This was not a valuable painting, I understand, but it held a lot of sentimental value to the people in this community in Spain. Can the damage be undone, Dr. Stoner?
2: Well, it seems to be a 19th century painting, and it looks like she tried to clean it first and then started repainting it. And what happens when, a, when a as you say, call a professional, mm. when a professional conservator does a treatment, he or she limits the treatment to just the lost parts. Here we have none of the original painting showing. Can it be treated well? If what she put on it is removable, it's possible Mm. that it could be removed, and then a professional conservator could come in, consolidate what's left, and in-paint just the, or we call it in-painting because we paint only in the losses, just what is missing.
0: Have you ever seen or heard anything like this before? I'm wondering how common amateur restorations are.
2: My impression is that in Europe, it's a little less likely to have this do-it-yourself, but it's a absolute passion in America. It's something about our pioneer spirit. We have uh, here at Winokur University of Delaware a once a month free of charge clinic, and things come in all the time that people, benign neglect, would have been so much better. But oh no, they get the Windex, they get the fantastic, and they try these things. And just like this, they clean away part of it, (gasps) they're so embarrassed, and then they repaint the entire thing. And if they did it in a paint material we can remove, there's hope. But if they did it in an oil paint that's stronger, which I'm so sorry to say might be the case here, trying to separate the repaint from the underlying paint becomes extremely tricky.
0: Dr. Stoner, uh, University of Delaware, where you are, is one of three art conservation schools in the U.S., and I gather your students are just flabbergasted by this.
2: Oh, yes. I mean, it's hit the like a virus on Facebook because everybody's hearts are breaking because they know it wasn't done in any malicious way, but it's such a heartbreaker. I mean, when you look at the painting, that was it looked like it was flaking a little in Christ's red robe. Right. And then it looks like someone rubbed it, and it's completely missing in the bottom and all over the right side of his head, and then there's nothing left of the original at all.
0: If the church, if the community called you, uh, I imagine this would be a challenge, but is it the type of project you'd enjoy taking on to fix the now unfixed fresco, or would you go running and screaming in the other direction?
2: <laughs> well, that's a complicated question. First of all, I know they'd call quite fabulous Spanish restorers, but we, we just had here a Norman Rockwell with almost the exact same uh, not a single original brush stroke of Norman Rockwell was showing. So no, we don't run screaming. We we talk to the owner and say, Now this is how many hours it's going to take. This is the likelihood of success. So the very first thing to do is ask the woman, Oh, please um, uh, Signora, show me the materials that you used and then we can uh start trying to take them off and they'd be very fresh. So fresh is good too. If it's not too much more overclean than it looks like in one of these pictures. There could be real hope.
0: Joyce Hill-Stoner teaches at the Winterthur University of Delaware Program in Art Conservation. Her book, Conservation of Easel Paintings, will be out in November and will be the international textbook of painting conservation. Joyce, thank you very much.
2: My pleasure, and I much good luck to the Spanish authorities who are going to be dealing with this.
0: This is PRI. The World is brought to
3: you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. When many American Jews think back to their Eastern European roots, a certain musical often comes to mind.
1: A fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But here, in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition!
0: This summer, a small group of college students took a trip to Eastern Europe in search of that tradition. Reporter Nina Porzuki has the story.
7: Forget Lonely Planet, forget photos. When Rob Adler Peckerer plans a trip to Eastern Europe, he goes straight to one guidebook publisher.
8: So this right here is a 1907 Baedeker. You can't beat the maps in these old Baedekers.
7: Yes, that's 1907. No matter that the sites on the maps written in German are, well, just a bit out of date, they show just what Peckerer is looking for.
8: It indicates the Jewish spaces are still active Jewish places and that you can look on the map and see, you know, here's a synagogue and here's a synagogue.
7: For Peckerer, the executive director of Yiddishkeit, a nonprofit Yiddish cultural organization, these guidebooks point to a past that he wants young American Jews to know.
8: The idea here is that the past thousand years of Jewish life is what's missing from Jewish education, um, that kids don't know about Jewish life in Europe. They learn today mostly about Israel and they learn mostly about the destruction of Jewish culture.
7: So instead of visiting concentration camps and mass graves like many conventional Jewish student tours, this summer Pecker took eight students to the hometowns of Jewish poets and novelists. This is a tour more about life than genocide. More than anything else, Pecker wants to take students back to the villages where their families came from sometimes hundreds of years ago.
8: Most Jews don't know the name of the towns that they're from.
7: They just have a musical.
8: Right, exactly. They have a musical to point to and say, yeah, that's where the people dance in the middle of the town square and, uh, you know, had a guy on the roof creepily following you in the street and things like that.
7: Hannah Efron, a 21-year-old comparative lit major at UC Berkeley, was one of the students who went on the trip in search of her family's tradition. I reached her several weeks after she returned. Growing up, Efron always heard one thing about herself from her parents.
9: I always have my parents telling me, oh, Hannah, you're such an Efron.
7: Being Efron meant having her grandfather's sense of humor and his stubborn streak. But she never really considered where that Ephronness originated until Pecker helped her research the first member of her family to take Efron as a last name. In a small Yiddish-speaking town named Amdor, it's called Indor now and it's in Belarus, lived her great great Great, well, many great grandfather Mototsunis.
9: My ancestor's name was Mota, and his mother's name was Tsunna, so he was Mota Tsunna's son. And he chose the name Ephron and
7: was an Ephron since then. The group took a bus ride to what is now just a tiny village. They knew two things. Mototsunis was the town baker, and he lived on the corner of the old market square. So that's where the bus stopped. This audio is from recordings the group made that day. This is how Efron described the town. Just two streets, a smattering of houses, and an old woman watering her neighbor's yard. Packer Efron, and the tour guide exited the bus, approached the woman, and asked, are there any Efrons?
8: What's my name? What's Efron. Efron? Efron.
7: And much to their surprise, the old woman started to talk about the Jewish history of the town. The old woman told Efron that long, long ago the town had been about 80% Jewish, Today, there were just a few remnants of Jewish buildings left. The group walked down the road, snapping photos. People came out of their houses to see the commotion. And, says Efron, they pointed the group in the direction of what they said was once a synagogue. During the Soviet period, it had been used as a music school, but had since fallen into disrepair.
9: We were kind of trying to peek in the windows, and it was full of garbage. and, And eventually... Somebody walked around the side and there was this big open doorway. And one by one, we all just jumped into the old synagogue because we went, you know what? When are you coming back to Indora? That this is your chance. This is the shot.
1: Wow. It's huge, right? Yeah. It really is, yeah.
7: This was just one of nine synagogues in this town. But this was the main one. Walking around the enormous, empty building drove home just how big the community had been.
9: You could picture it full. You could picture, you know, there was nearly 2,000 Jews there. There were more synagogues than just the one, but on the high holidays, you could picture everyone gathered there. You just had to close your eyes.
7: The group left the synagogue in search of the cemetery. Efron says it was a wild place. Weeds and grass hid the headstones, which had turned to tiny stone nubs on the hill. Horses out to pasture wandered between the graves. A rusted gate with two stars of David was the only real indication of what the field had been.
9: You know, I I was kind of secretly hoping in my heart of hearts that we would find a stone marking where Matitsinus was.
7: She didn't find that first Ephron's tombstone.
9: As I was walking through the cemetery, I felt like they could see me. I felt like my family, I felt like they knew I had come to see them. I'm sorry. <laughs> like they knew that I was there to visit them, to to mark them and to honor them. And that, you know, they were kind of there like, oh, there's our Hannah. She's going to graduate from Berkeley next year. Still no boyfriend. You know, like they were, they were my family. And that they knew I was there and I knew they were there.
7: Hannah Efron is back in Berkeley, hanging out at her parents' house until the school year starts. Was she changed by the trip? Yes and no. She is still, according to her family, very Efron. Only now she has a place to put the name. For The World, I'm Nina Porzuki.
0: You can hear more audio from that trip and also see a slideshow of snapshots at theworld.org. Today's GeoQuiz takes us on a wine-tasting tour. We're going to Burgundy, one of France's primary wine regions. We're especially interested in the wines of Givray-Chambertin, a village in eastern Burgundy. This area has produced wine for hundreds of years, so they have a bit of savoir-faire. This village has a beautiful 12th-century chateau, but now some winemakers in Givray-Chambertin are up in arms because the castle and its vineyards were recently sold to a Chinese businessman for about $10 million. Now the castle is closed to the public. So, for today's quiz, we want to get specific, especially for those who know their French districts. Can you name the département that includes the village of Gevray-Chambartin? We'll be back with the answer in a bit. This is i I'm Marco Worman. Ahead, the great Malian singer Hira Arby is living like a refugee in the capital Bamako after fleeing the fighting in her hometown of Timbuktu.
10: She can't perform. All her instruments and her equipment is in Timbuktu. All her animals have died because there's no one to look after them. It was a desperate situation. She has nowhere to go.
3: The world is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. There are reports today that Syrian government forces have stormed a town on the outskirts of Damascus, and they're bombarding southern parts of the capital. It happened as the last of the U.N. military observers left the city. Syria seems to be sliding ever deeper into a civil war along sectarian lines with the mostly Alawite forces of President Bashar al-Assad pitted against the mostly Sunni rebels. But for some Syrians, the battle lines are less defined. Reporter Shira Frankel spoke to one Syrian Alawite defector in the Turkish town of Antakya.
11: Abu Omar can only speak to his brother back in Syria in hushed tones and code words. In this crowded cafe in Antakya, Omar phones his brother to see if anything has changed in their family's situation. Uh,
6: they are under, under the eyes of the regime because of me. So every move, they are just watching my family in every step, every move, everything.
11: Omar asks that we not use his real name to protect his family. He's an Alawite Syrian from a village outside Latakia in the northwest areas well-known as a bastion of support for President Bashar al-Assad. As an Alawite, Omar would be considered a natural supporter of Assad's regime. But about seven months ago, he fled Syria and joined the rebels, making his way to Turkey. He says he felt his community had been taken hostage, forced to support Assad against the rest of their countrymen.
6: They just kidnapped Alawite community, and they are just pushing them to fight against the Syrian people just to have the civil war they are dreaming about.
11: Omar acknowledges that his case is unusual. Only a handful of Alawites openly support the rebellion, and he's paid a price for his support. His Alawite community now shuns him, but so do some of the rebels, who say they can never fully trust him. Even before he formally defected by dodging his responsibility to the Syrian army and fleeing Syria, he felt pressed by both sides. He says that when he took part in an anti-Assad protest in Latakia 13 months ago, he felt he had to cover his face.
6: Actually, I was covering my face with a black mask, black cotton mask, so that the government or the regime cannot recognize me. And also, the young people who is protesting, they cannot recognize me also as an Alawite guy. So... You have to be careful from the both, both sides.
11: This video has been making the rounds among the mostly Sunni rebels. It shows a group of Alawites in a village outside Latakia hoisting posters of Assad that they kiss and embrace. The crowd chants a popular slogan, pledging to protect Assad with their blood and souls. Omar says that videos like these are misleading, He argues that many Alawites have no choice but to publicly announce their devotion to Assad due to the constant scrutiny on their community.
6: You know, in a Sunni community, if in every building there is an agent for the regime, in Alawite community, in every building there is five. And because the regime knows that if Alawite community goes down to the street, protests against him, against the regime, the regime will fall in in two days. So that, why he is putting all his power now, since the beginning of the revolution, just to watch every single Alawite guy.
11: That watchfulness, says Omar, is part of what keeps his family and other Alawites under Assad's control. Last week, Omar's brother got called up to serve in the Syrian military. He phoned Omar in distress. He doesn't want to join the fight against the rebels, but he's afraid to defect.
6: They cannot just leave Syria to the unknown here. Because they know that I suffered a lot since seven months. Because, I mean, nobody supported me, nobody helped me.
11: Omar says there are also fears that the family left behind in Syria would be punished as an example. When he defected, his family received daily threatening visits from police and security agents.
6: Yeah, pick it up.
11: Omar has been calling his brother for days and no one's answering he's still not sure what his brother will do. He has to rely on infrequent and likely monitored phone conversations to talk about matters that could mean life and death. He says that each day, he loses a bit more hope. Once, he thought of the rebellion against Assad as a united uprising against a dictator. But today, he says, he's afraid the sectarian divides will drag Syria into a war they'll be fighting for years to come. For the world, I'm sure, Frankel in Antakya, Turkey.
0: The layers of ethnic tensions in Syria make it a difficult country to report on, especially since so few journalists are able to cover the conflict there up close. Those tensions come through, though, in political cartoons, which the world's Carol Hills follows closely. Carol, what kind of issues are you seeing in cartoons about Syria in recent weeks?
12: Well, there's a lot of sort of desperate images, both of people fleeing Syria and also desperate images of Bashar al-Assad sort of hiding behind a podium while bullets fly above him. Um, sort of lighting matches and throwing them on the ground. It's kind of a reference to chemical weapons and the fear that he might use them. And then you mentioned journalists and the the inability for many journalists to cover the story. There's a very dark cartoon this week by an Israeli cartoonist, Michel Kishka. And it shows Bashar al-Assad, he's holding a rifle, and it looks like he's sitting in his den. And above him on the wall, instead of heads of animals that he's killed, are the heads of journalists who've either been killed or died while covering Syria. So it's pretty grim.
0: Very dark indeed. When the uprising began, it was part of the narrative of the Arab Spring. Have the themes evolved or changed over the course of the conflict in Syria?
12: They have. There's been a lot of in, – in the beginning and even still now, there's a lot of Bashar the bad guy. His slightly Hitler-esque mustache doesn't really help. But there's a lot of him with you know the growing nose because he's lying, covered ears, he's not listening – bullets flying, a lot of sort of bloodbath, the images of red on the Syrian flag representing blood, a lot of that. But as the months have dragged on, there's also a lot of disparaging images about the UN, the UN's mm. failure to do anything, the failure of China and Russia to do anything, and the, also the, the the inability of the opposition to really organize and and figure out who would replace Assad. So you're seeing more and more of those kind of things.
0: Who are the cartoonists, mostly from the Middle East, or is it a grab bag? And are there any Syrians either in Syria doing this uh, uh, subversively or outside Syria?
12: Well, it's interesting. Um, There's a handful of Europeans and North Americans and the occasional Australian, And then the most are from the Middle East, and in terms of Syria, there's two or three. There's the famous Ali Farzat, who was attacked last August, Mm. and it's hard to find current cartoons by him. He's still healing. But there's two great cartoonists in um, the stuff I've seen lately, which is Saad Hajo, who is still in Syria, as far as I can tell, and another guy, Juan Zero. That's his pen name. He lives in Egypt right now, and he does a lot of interesting kind of comic caricatures. So it's really exciting to still see the Syrian cartoonists doing their craft, whether they're in or outside Syria.
0: Carol Hills, the World cartoon curator. Carol, thanks for chatting with us. You're welcome, Marco. That cartoon of Assad as a hunter of journalists and the other cartoons we've been talking about are on our website. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. August in Spain means vacations at the beach with friends and family sharing what many call the country's caviar, Iberian ham. The ham is a delicacy in cutting the meat off the bone of veritable art form, but it's an often dangerous one. According to one recent study, some 60,000 Spaniards end up in emergency rooms each year because of ham cutting accidents.
13: Here's the world's Jerry Haddon. It was years ago, but Jordi Caballé will never forget the day he accidentally drove a ham knife into his own finger. He says, you cut yourself when you're cutting incorrectly or you hit a solid section of the ham, maybe bone, and the knife gets stuck. So you pull hard. In my case, the knife slipped free, he says. Look at the scar on my index finger. The blade plunged into my bone and got stuck. With a little wriggling, Caballé says, he dislodged it. Then he went to the emergency room. Like tens of thousands of other Spaniards every year, says a doctor's association in Malaga. To get how dangerous ham carving can be, you have to watch someone do it. First of all, the entire pig leg, from hoof to hip bone, is clamped horizontally onto a special ham holder. You stand behind the hip, lean forward, and set your knife just above the hoof. Then you carve slowly and carefully towards your own body. People have been known to cut open their forearms, even their own stomachs, a sort of accidental harikiri. The problem is so common that professional ham cutter Juan Carlos Gomez has written a book about it. The title in English would be Ham Cutting for Dummies.
4: <inaudible>
13: Gomez, who was Spain's ham cutter champion in 2011, says his main advice is to pay constant attention to the hand that isn't cutting and keep it out of the cutting area. But he says that's easier said than done. We put all our concentration on the knife hand, he says, focused on getting the thin cut just right. And what happens? We completely forget where the other hand is, and we cut ourselves. When a reporter unfamiliar with ham cutting simply suggests cutting away from your body, he gets some quick schooling. You have to cut in the opposite direction of the muscle fibers, Gomez says. That means from the hoof up. In the other direction, the ham would be very hard to chew. What makes Iberian ham a delicacy is its tender, melt-in-your-mouth quality. So Spaniards aren't going to mess with tradition. But there are some practical things you can do to keep safe. Some people wear chainmail gloves. Or you can go online and buy a clip-on knife guard. But for purists like Jordi Caballé, who, by the way, is also a professional ham cutter, the key to avoiding accidents is knowing your knife. A professional's knife is like a samurai sword, he says. It's his tool, something personalized. You get so adapted to it and comfortable with it. Look at mine, he says, holding up a thin, battered blade glistening with ham fat. It's old and worn, but cuts like nobody else's. Perhaps no one knows better how well a ham knife cuts than leading Spanish hand surgeon Manuel Yusá. At Barcelona's Valle de Brun Hospital, He says people come in all the time with the telltale gashes. Ham knife wounds are especially bad, he says, because you tend to cut both tendons and nerves in the fingers, which can mean surgery and months of physical therapy, he says. His advice? You buy a ham, send it out to be cut by a pro. Have the meat shrink-wrapped. You'll have ham all year, and you'll avoid the risks. True, but something else would be lost, says Eva Vila, owner of a gourmet ham and wine shop in Barcelona called Viniteca. A leg of Iberian ham there in its holder, she says, means party. It symbolizes celebration. For Spaniards, she says, losing that would be worse than losing a little blood. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. For our Geo quiz today, we were asking for the name of the
0: French département, the administrative district where Gevray Chambertin wine is made. The answer is Côte d'Or in Burgundy. A few investors have traveled to Côte d'Or to buy vineyards and properties over the years, but the recent purchase of the chateau in Gevray Chambertin has raised hackles. The world's Adeline Sear, our very own Burgundian, is here with details on the story. Adeline, what is up with this sale?
5: Well, Margaret, imagine the rolling hills of Burgundy, a medieval village where people have been making wine for hundreds of years. And then in the middle of this village is this castle. And the castle was in the hands of the same family since the 1800s that decided to sell it apparently back in March. But they had always kept it open to the public.
0: And now it's sold. How much did it sell for? And uh, what was the interest of this Chinese businessman uh, in it to buy it?
5: Well, the winemakers' association it had been estimated at 3.5 million euros, which is roughly $4.5 million. But the owners apparently wanted more like $9 million, which is kind of huge for a property like that. So the local winemakers came up with about $6 million, and their bid was turned down because the family went to highest bidder, a Chinese businessman who came up with no less than $10 million for it, more than twice the estimated value, and of course something that's completely unseen around there.
0: So who is this businessman from China?
5: Well, the whole thing, Mark, has been kept under wraps for some reason. Not much is known yet about this businessman other that he's a so-called gambling tycoon in Macau uh, and that he's not going to be there that much, but that he will keep this castle in very good condition, something that uh, the mayor of the village is very happy about. But I spoke to the president of the local winemakers association. He was completely heartbroken about losing his bid. Uh, He said, well, this is sort of typical businessman who wants to have a nice photo of a castle to display in his office, you know, in in China and doesn't really care about wine or anything else. Mm,
0: But there is more to it than that. There's a backstory here because it's not the first time that historical properties have been sold to foreigners uh, in in this area. And uh, people in, in China are drinking more and more French wine.
5: That's true. That there's a, In fact, a Chinese investor bought vineyards in the area recently, but with a local winemaker. So he's sort of really getting into it. Perhaps he wants to learn about it. That makes it more noble. Also, a Canadian investor bought some property around there. But this castle was sort of the, the more iconic historical site of the area. And it's true that uh, local winemakers have to tread carefully here because they do make a lot of money selling their wines to the U.S., Japan, and now apparently more and more to China. And you need to maintain some diplomatic ties with all these countries if you want to have good customers coming back and, and have a good presence on the world market.
0: Well, the chateau is right in the middle of Côte de Nuit grapes, uh, grown in the department of Côte d'Or, our answer to the geo-quiz today. So this buyer at least knows his wine. The world's Adeline sir, thank you.
5: You're welcome, Marco.
0: This is PRI Public Radio International.
3: At PRI's The World, there is more than one side to a story. You can add your voice to the news conversation online. Find PRI The World on Facebook, on Twitter, and at theworld.org. The World is supported by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. When it comes to music, I tend to think of the planet as having hot zones. Places where, for one reason or another, music has a rich history and continues to thrive. Here in the States, think New Orleans or New York City. Outside the US, Cuba, Brazil, and South Africa come to mind. And then there's Mali. Mali produced the late guitarist Ali Farkature, whom we're hearing now. Then there's musicians Salif Keita and Umu Sangare. And don't forget singer-songwriter Habib Kwate and Tuareg band Tinariwen. For me, musically, Mali is one of the richest places in the world. And as of yesterday... The music was stopped in the north of the country. That's because Islamic extremists who control much of the vast desert region of Mali have banned all music except the singing of Quranic verses. The extremists say they are enforcing the strict Islamic code of law known as Sharia. The rule went into effect yesterday, months after a military coup in Mali destabilized the government, leaving militants and hardline Islamic groups controlling the north. Freelance journalist Rose Skelton was recently in Southern Mali reporting for the British newspaper The Independent. Her story for them on the musical situation there is titled Can Musical Mali Play On? And Rose Skelton, the answer to the question seems to be a very forceful no today, doesn't it?
10: It does, yes. Mali is really suffering uh, on all sides, but really the the music industry, which is so closely linked to t- the tourism industry, is really being crushed I should point out that this has been going on for really for quite some time. Tourists were kidnapped um, a couple of years ago. And that was really the beginning of the the sort of crushing of the music scene there and the the tourism circuit. Mm. But this latest news um, about the, the silencing of the radios is really the final straw for certainly for now for Mali's musical culture.
0: You were just in Mali last week, as we said, Rose. That was before these Islamic militants known as the Movement for Oneness and Jihad in West Africa announced this ban on secular music yesterday. Apparently, all the uh, extremist groups uh, signed on as well and support this ban. What signs were there of uh, this cultural strictness when you visited? Did you think something like this would be inevitable?
10: Well, this announcement doesn't really surprise me. I mean, there wasn't much music going on. I mean, I was in the south. Um, It's impossible to get to the north right now because it, it is so dangerous. But most of the musicians that I met were telling me, we can't play anymore. There's no tourists coming um the festivals are being cancelled tours are being cancelled really there's a there's a financial um pressure on the music industry but also uh i was i was interviewing musicians in the north by telephone and they were telling me that their their instruments have been burnt um, these are the ones who are, who are, have stayed in the north mm. their their speakers um amplifiers guitars they've been burnt by these groups even if they've managed to keep their their instruments or perhaps their singers they have to do it in, in hiding. And I I received a, a call from, from one rapper who's uh, in Gao in northern Mali. And he rang me, just said, you know, please, please don't forget us. Don't forget the musicians here. You know, you have to help us. It was really very moving. Um, there's this real sense of of just the music being strangled there.
0: I mean, it does sound really dire. Uh, you also met uh, the great Malian singer Hyra Arbi in Bamako. Now, Haira Arby is originally from the north, from the city of Timbuktu. Now she's in the south in, in Bamako. What were some of the things she shared with you?
10: Well, she came down. She was going to do a U.S. tour and she came down to Bamako just a few days before the coup, um, which is when I first met her. We were there together during the coup. Um, this is she, in March, right? Yeah, this was the March coup. Timbuktu, was, her town, was taken uh, just a few days after the the coup by uh, Tuareg groups and then the Islamists. So she's actually, I mean, she's really a refugee. She's staying in a, a room, which is a tiny four-square-meter room with a bed in a youth center that the government has sort of allowed her to stay in. She's there just with her suitcases. She's got her kids are in Bamako. They can't go to school. She can't. Perform all her instruments and her equipment is in Timbuktu. All her animals have died because there's no one to look after them. She mm. doesn't know who's in her house. It was tragic. It was a desperate—I mean, really just a desperate situation. She has nowhere to go, and she has no way of of practicing her art, and she has no way of making income. That's all she knows. And she's one of the country's better-known musicians, and there—I mean, there are just hundreds like her.
0: You mentioned how closely music and tourism in Mali are intertwined. Um, Aside from the ban of secular music on the radio in northern Mali, it's also affected this well-known festival in the desert. Um, Some of the biggest names in music have actually performed and gone there, from Robert Plant to Bono from U2. What are the organizers of the festival, festival in the desert going to do? I mean, it's been slowly whittled away out of the last couple of years.
10: Yes. I mean, there was an announcement on their website a few days ago that they were saying that the festival going to go on and then um, said that they had been talking with with people in neighboring countries to maybe put the
0: festival on
10: there. But they seem very determined to, to let it continue. On the other hand, I don't know how many tourists are, are going to take that risk.
0: Rose, help us out here a second. Mali until early this year was one of Africa's most successful democracies. How did in the course of several months did it become so fragile?
10: I think we have to look at (laughs) that first statement. Uh, I really think that Mali wasn't one of West Africa's most stable democracies.
0: Even relatively speaking?
10: Well, the bar is quite low. Yes, that's true. But the Malian government is deeply corrupt. And that spreads to the army, which is very, very powerful in Mali. And one person told me, you can't put a democracy on a country in 20 years. You know, Mali has never been a democratic country And just because we had elections doesn't mean that we're a democratic nation. And I think that was why everyone was so surprised, because it just it folded so quickly Um, within hours. You know, the the whole political structure had just folded.
0: And in the meantime, big concerns across the West African region over military invention in Mali or not. We'll continue to stay on the story. You can read the article Rose Skelton wrote for the British newspaper The Independent. We have a link at theworld.org. Rose Skelton, thank you so much.
10: Thank you very much.
0: You wouldn't be able to hear the great Malian singer Hyra Arby today if you lived in Timbuktu, so we'll let our airwaves carry her voice. Here's Hyra Arby's song, Gumu. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We're back
13: tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can.
1: PRI, Public Radio
3: International.